All right, let us open our Bibles to Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. So that's Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. And then we're going to go to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. keeping the steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All right. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. Amen. Let's pray once again as we prepare to open the word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the rather shocking truth that you sent your Son to die, not for the godly, but for the ungodly for your enemies, according to Romans chapter 5. And we thank you that Jesus, in his willingness, laid aside his crown and condescended and stepped down into the muck and mire of our existence here on, the, on this earth to live amongst us and teach and ultimately to die for our sake. We thank you for the extravagant lengths to which you have gone to bring us back into right relationship with you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And Lord, now as we open this section of Exodus once more on a Sunday, we ask that your Holy Spirit's presence be in our midst, uh, nudging us, teaching us, helping us to see afresh uh, what your grace is and how wonderful your mercy toward us is. Reveal to us your character. We pray in this hour, in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, our sermon series on the book of Exodus took us to Exodus chapter 32, the story of the golden calf, and one of the things that we noticed was that after the golden calf episode, God decided to rule out his wrath and decimation Plan. God concluded in Exodus 32:14 that after all, he would not annihilate Israel because of their sin. Well, in Exodus 33, we find God in the midst of another decision in the wake of the golden calf. This time, the decision God is making in Exodus 33 is whether or not his presence would continue with Israel as they traveled toward the land of Canaan. Initially, in Exodus 33, God tells Moses that an angel would be assigned for the task, that God himself would not go with them as they proceeded toward Canaan. 
In Exodus 33.5, God even says this. He says, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. But then there is some deliberation that happens between God and Moses once again as Moses stands before God in the tent of meeting. And finally we get verse 14 of Exodus 33 and we get verse 17 also where God relents again. He decides in the final analysis that he will go personally with Israel to Canaan. Now, what I want us to key in on here as we begin this morning is Exodus 33:18 and following. I hope you have your Bible open. Again, we have the verses on screen, but it's good to have a Bible open in front of you. So Exodus 33:18 and following. Right after God assures Moses that indeed his presence will go with Israel on the journey, Moses then asks, rather audaciously he asks, to see The glory of God. Moses says in verse 18, Please show me your glory. And Yahweh replies in 33.19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And God then tells Moses about just how this is going to work now. Moses must be positioned in the cleft of a rock. And as God passes by, God will shield Moses until he has until God has passed by, after which time Moses will only be permitted to see the back of God. To see God's face would mean certain death for Moses. Moses must not be allowed to see God's face. But again, in all of this, notice verse 19, look at it with me, where God promises to proclaim before Moses God's name Yahweh, and as we noted several weeks ago when we looked at Exodus 3 and the revelation of God's name that happened there at the burning bush, a name in this ancient Near Eastern context was so much more than simply a label like Joe or Janet. A name in biblical culture was closely and organically connected to the very character of the one who bore the name. Again, I quote commentator Nahum Sarna, who says that in this ancient Near Eastern context, the name, he says, was intended to connote character and nature, the totality of the intricate, interwoven, manifold forces that make up the whole personality of the bearer of the name. So that when God promises Moses in 33.19 that God would pass by Moses and proclaim God's name, this was going to be nothing less than a proclamation or a revelation of the character and the personality of Almighty God. The proclamation of God's name would reveal to Moses something of the inner nature, the inner life 
of God himself. Well, all of that is an intro to where we really want to land today, which is Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. This passage is the fulfillment of Exodus 33:19. Moses is back up on the mountain with freshly minted tablets because the first two had been smashed during the golden calf debacle. Again, when I say tablets, don't think of like an iPad. We're talking about limestone tablets. Okay, So he's got these new tablets. And again, just to remind you, God had decided not to annihilate Israel after the golden calf. And God had decided, after all, that he would go with Israel to Canaan after the golden calf. Now our question is, will God forgive Israel after the golden calf? Watch what happens beginning at verse 5. Moses is holding the new tablets and God descends in a cloud and God proclaims God's name, Yahweh. And again, when we read that word name in this context, we should already be thinking that this is going to be a revelation of the character of the one who bears the name. We should be thinking already, who then is God? What is God like? How does he act? What is he going to reveal here about his own self? Well, we then get verses 6 and 7. And here in these verses, to quote the Puritan Henry Law, a train of glory issues from the courts of heaven. If you're a person who likes to mark up your Bible or highlight, underline things, these verses would be great verses for you to highlight, circle, underline, draw asterisks beside. They are central verses, in fact, in the revelation of the entire Bible. These verses give us a revelation of the character of God that comes from God's own lips. And as we'll see a little later, these verses act sort of like a little sun in the Bible around which many other later passages orbit. So many of Israel's prayers and praises later in the Bible have these verses of Exodus 34 as their basis. So go ahead and underline or highlight these verses. We want to walk slowly through this self-revelation of God here. And I encourage you, friends, behold your God in this part of his revealed word. Who is God? What is God like? How will he act in your life? These verses give us a glorious window into the very heart of the God with whom we have to do. Let's read both verses together and then go back and chew on it uh, section by section. Verses 6 and 7. Yahweh passed before Moses, just like Yahweh said he would do, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means 
clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now consider with me, friends, two things before we get to the content of the verses. First of all, I ask you this question. When was this magnificent self-disclosure of God given? It was given remarkably not when Israel deserved it. Not when Israel was in any way white hot in their zeal for God. But rather, this amazing revelation of God's own self was given by God to Israel still in the moment of their infidelity. In the moment of their tremendous plummet into sin. Yes. This grace of God's self-disclosure was given to Israel in a moment when the disclosure was utterly undeserved in the wake of the golden calf. Now, doesn't that fact alone say a great deal about the amazing character of our God? Listen to the comment of Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann. Brueggemann says this, It is crucial and precisely characteristic of this God that the statement of self-disclosure is given in the moment when God is most deeply offended and Israel is most profoundly in jeopardy. Oh, that we would renew our minds in the character of God. This says something profound, I think, about the patience and the mercy and the grace of our God. And then secondly, just before we look at the content of these verses, note this interesting fact as well. I think this is interesting, that in 33.18, Moses had asked for a visual display of the glory of God, something he could see, show me your glory. But what Moses gets now at 34.6 and 34.7 is not a visual display as much as an audible display. In other words, the revelation of God's glory that Moses gets here is heard more than it is seen by Moses. Faith comes how? By hearing. Let's go to the text itself now. Verse 6. Verse 6 has God repeating his name, Yahweh, twice. Yahweh, Yahweh. In our sermon on Exodus 3, we emphasize that the personal name YHWH, or Yahweh, has at least something to do with presence. I think that for God to repeat his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, twice like this in our verse is probably a way for him to emphasize his presence There with Moses. Behold me, Moses. I'm really actualized, really here with you now in a powerful way. Yahweh, Yahweh. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. Behold your God. The God with whom you have to do reveals himself here to you as Merciful. Now let's just ponder this for a moment. The, the Hebrew word in the original text of Exodus 34, 6, that we translate into English as 
merciful, is a word that expresses a deep sort of compassion in God. This is about God having a tender, almost gut-level attitude of concern and sympathy for people. This is how he reveals himself here. God has about him this compassion, this inner tender-hearted mercy toward those who are weak. Amen? Toward those who are in need of help. Behold your God here. He is merciful. God says further in verse 6 that he is gracious. And in fact, what we find in Scripture is that these two terms translated here in our verse as merciful and gracious, so often in Scripture, these two terms, we find them paired together. But this second term, gracious, in the original Hebrew, has this flavor, that God is disposed, listen, He is disposed in His own inner life, His own inner self. He's disposed toward showing favor to the afflicted, favor toward the needy. Our God is prone to act without any personal hope for personal benefit. He has this proneness to act in a favorable way as a superior toward those who are afflicted or toward those who need forgiveness. Do you need forgiveness this morning? He's prone to act this way toward those who need help. Gracious, again, behold the God who formed you in your mother's womb. This is him. Merciful and gracious. Do you know him to be this way? God continues his self-description in verse 6. He says also that he is slow to anger. Arek apayim in Hebrew. Slow to anger. Actually, if we translate the Hebrew here in its most literal sense, what we get is the phrase long of nose. God is literally long of nose. Now, when you get really angry about something, yesterday on the way to the wedding when my GPS turned me around and we were an hour late, I was getting a little hot. When you get really angry about something, your breath can get short, right? You tend not to take long, deep breaths when you're really hot about something, angry about something. This idiom here, long of nose, in the text may suggest that God is prone in maddening situations. He is prone to take long, deep breaths. In other words, God is apt to be forbearing rather than immediately wrathful. God is reluctant with his wrath. His anger is a tempered anger. He is patient with the rebellious, like those who built the golden calf. Slow to anger. God waits with his anger and gives people time to repent. Behold your God. 
And God keeps going with his self-revelation in verse 6. He wants you to know further that he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. That word abounds indicates to us an abundant quantity. God has an abundant quantity or an abundant quality of steadfast love and faithfulness. He abounds or overflows in these things. And these two terms, steadfast love and faithfulness, are another pair of words that appear together frequently throughout the Bible. In the original Hebrew, the words are chesed ve'emet, steadfast love and faithfulness. Taken together as they should be taken together, the two terms indicate to us this, a dependability, a trustworthiness, an unshakable sort of certainty and reliability in God to do what? To act tenaciously, to act inexhaustibly in kindness and in benevolence and love in his covenant relationships. Well, just before we venture forward into verse 7, let's pause here to say this. And I want you to listen. The thing that makes God so staggering here, that makes him so great, is that God is a God who practices, who acts out what he preaches here about himself. In other words... We've already seen that these very characteristics of God that he gives us here in Exodus 34.6, we've already seen these attributes in action in the story of Exodus. God has shown us that he walks what he talks. So, for example, when God describes himself here as merciful and gracious, hasn't he already demonstrated the truth of that fact in Exodus 32.14? When his sorrowing compassion led him to relent concerning his wrath and decimation plan. There, he was certainly merciful and gracious. And concerning his self-description here in 34.6, that he is long of nose, or in English, slow to anger, hasn't God already displayed that characteristic by his amazing forbearance and his unbelievable patience when Israel grumbled against him in the wilderness as they, as they journeyed towards Sinai. And as for God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, acting in reliable covenant loyalty to his people, hasn't God done just that in honoring the earlier covenant promises he'd made to Abraham? Exodus 32 Verses 12 to 14. That was a factor that was key in his relenting from his annihilation of Israel. The point is, friends, that within Exodus, God has walked the talk that he gives in Exodus 34, 6. Our God, we need to see this morning, he is a God who practices what he preaches, who acts out his own self-description. He's that kind of God. Behold your God. Exalt in your God with me this morning. Preaching is a dialogical thing. It's not a monologue. So if you feel like saying hallelujah and amen, go ahead and do that. It puts fire in the preacher's bones, by the way. But let's go forward to verse 7 now, finally. 
God continues the train of glory here, continues his self-description. He uses the word hesed again as verse 7 opens, or in English, steadfast love. Our God keeps hesed, or steadfast love, for thousands. In other words, God extends his covenant loyalty, extends his covenant blessings to thousands, and in the context, surely this means thousands of generations. He says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now notice this, the word forgiving here is literally to bear or to lift up or to carry. God is telling us here that he himself bears the load of human iniquity and transgression and sin against him. He bears the load of that in order to maintain the covenant. And he does this in pure grace. And of course, this is a truth that it literally just shouts in the direction of the New Testament and Jesus Christ. God bearing human sin in the God-man, Jesus Christ. More on that soon. But again, just remember the context here. Let's not lose sight of the context. Exodus 34.7 is still in the wake of the golden calf. We have been wondering after God decided not to annihilate Israel and after God had decided to yet proceed with his presence with Israel as they journeyed toward Canaan, we'd been wondering if God would also give Israel some sort of statement of official forgiveness. And I think the statement we're looking for is right here at Exodus 34.7. God reveals himself to Moses in the face of the golden calf He reveals himself as a God who forgives, who bears the load of human iniquity, transgression, and sin. He will go to Israel with Canaan, to Canaan, and he forgives Israel of their wickedness. Note here that we get three separate words for the crooked behavior of you and I, of human beings. We get the words iniquity, transgression, and sin. The idea in using three words like this, instead of just one, is to emphasize the whole range of human sin. The whole range of human sin, and that, as John McKay has put it, the whole range of human disregard for the Lord may be met with forgiveness. Behold your God. Your God is a God who is prepared to forgive or bear personally the whole range of human wickedness. Dwayne Garrett, who teaches at my alma mater, Southern Seminary, and who wrote a commentary on Exodus, says this about the phrase in Exodus 34, this phrase on God's forgiveness. Garrett says, The point is that Yahweh forgives all manner, listen, all manner of immorality, Disobedience, indiscretion, rebellion, or more generically, sin. There are no degrees or types of sin that are beyond Yahweh's power or willingness to forgive. Yahweh forgives sin of every kind and shape. Isn't that good news? 
Well, friends, so far, the cumulative effect of these two verses, verses 6 and 7, the cumulative effect has been to do what Walter Brueggemann describes as assuring Moses and Israel that God is deeply committed to sustaining covenant with Israel even when the other party is careless and unresponsive as Israel had been in chapter 32, the golden calf. God is committed to sustaining covenant But now note where things go next in verse 7. Look at it with me. Suddenly, it seems that God's mood somehow changes. Maybe. All of a sudden, we get this interesting statement from God that although he's just talked about forgiving the whole range of human sin, he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we wonder, if we're reading this carefully, we wonder how do we reconcile the ending of verse 7 with both the beginning of verse 7 and also verse 6. In other words, how can God reveal himself as so generous in his forgiveness And yet suddenly now talk about not clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity on people up to four generations. Does that mean that there is no forgiveness after all, after God said there was? What's going on? I am convinced, and listen carefully because this is an important issue for us to deal with, I'm convinced that the commentator and Old Testament professor, Dwayne Garrett, who I mentioned earlier, is on track with a good solution to this quandary here. Garrett argues, first of all, and I would say that I wholeheartedly agree with him, after having looked at the original Hebrew, he argues that the, that the translation in the English Standard Version, I love the English Standard Version, but here I think they get it wrong, This translation in the ESV, but who will by no means clear the guilty, is simply an unhelpful and a rather substandard translation of the Hebrew. A more accurate translation of the Hebrew here, according to Garrett, would be something like, but he does not grant blanket amnesty. If we could go to that next slide, Oria. He does not grant blanket amnesty. So let's put it together with the phrase that went before it. It would go like this. God is saying that while he does indeed forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, he does not grant blanket amnesty. That is to say that while God does forgive sin, there are a couple of fine print issues involved. First of all, the issue of repentance. God grants and forgives amnesty to repentant sinners who turn to him asking for forgiveness, but he does not grant blanket amnesty to unrepentant sinners who carry on rebelling against God. Furthermore, even though God does extend forgiveness to repentant sinners, it does not exempt those people from the consequences that may have been brought about by their sin. He does not grant 
blanket amnesty. For example, I can forgive you if out of your own negligence you hit my car with your car. I can forgive you. It might take me a while, but I'll forgive you. But my forgiveness does not erase the consequences of your negligence. Maybe part of the consequence for you will be that your insurance rate now goes up. You are forgiven indeed, but you don't get a total, complete, blanket amnesty. There are still consequences that come with sin. And this is precisely what the end of verse 7 is talking about when God talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The basic idea here is that the consequences or the impact of a person's sin may be lasting. If I'm an alcoholic, the effects on my children and how they relate to people will be affected. And if I have grandchildren, same thing. My alcoholism will affect that generation also. There is the social impact of sin that God is getting at here. He does not grant blanket Amnesty. Though he forgives repentant sinners, it does not automatically mean that the consequences of sin on the ground are erased. Now, as I mentioned off the top, these verses of Exodus 34 that we've just tra- traversed through are like a little sun in the Bible. They're like a little sun that many other passages orbit around. These verses really that we've looked at this morning, are foundational in the Bible. They are massively important for us in any consideration of the character of God, who he is and what he's like, which is why these verses keep being repeated in the Bible and alluded to. Just to give you some texts in the greater Old Testament, you can write these down, I don't have them up on screen, some texts where Exodus 34, 6 and 7 uh, are taken up again, repeated verbatim perhaps, or, or alluded to, here are several texts for you if you want to jot them down. Deuteronomy 5.9, Numbers 14.18, Psalm 86.15, and Psalm 103.8, and Psalm 145.8, Nehemiah 9.17, and Jeremiah 32.18, and Joel 2.13, and Nahum 1.3, and Jonah 4.2. So already you can see just how central these verses of Exodus 34 are for the rest of the Old Testament. We also find shreds of these verses in places like the following. Deuteronomy 4.31, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9, Psalm 78.38, Psalm 86.5, Psalm 103, 117, 111.4, 112.4, and 116.5, not to mention Nehemiah 9.31 and Lamentations 3.32 and Daniel 9.4. Again, the point is that Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is a passage of tremendous consequence for the biblical authors as concerns who God is and what he does. May this passage for us become central in our walk with him, if it's not already. 
May we regularly go back to it and renew our minds in the character of God. Pray through this magnificent text. Well, I want to work all this toward a close by preaching Christ. It wouldn't be a Christian sermon if I didn't. By preaching Christ and the fact that Jesus is, listen, the glorious fulfillment of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. We said before that even within the book of Exodus, God walks what he talks. But now I want to show you the escalation of that fact, namely that God walks what he talks in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He walks what he talks most supremely in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, said Exodus 34, 6. We said there that the word merciful especially spoke of a gut-level compassion in God. Well, God came to earth in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in Mark 1.41, Jesus had an interaction with a leprous man in which Jesus was moved with splanknitzomai in Greek. Splanknitzomai describes a gut-level compassion in Jesus Christ. He was moved with Compassion with pity toward this leprous man, and Jesus healed the man. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. In Mark 6.34, God the Son had splanknitzomai, or gut-level compassion also, for a crowd of people there because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark 8.2, Jesus again experienced splanknitzomai for the crowd because they had nothing to eat. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's walking around in first century Israel showing his compassion. In Luke 7.13, Jesus had splanknitzomai yet again because the widow of Nain had just lost her one and only son. Behold your God in the person of Jesus Christ, a God merciful and gracious. Exodus 34.6 also revealed to us that God is abounding in hesed, abounding in grace toward his covenant partners, and abounding also in faithfulness or firmness, trueness. Isn't that just precisely how Jesus is described in John 1.14 that was read to us earlier, where Jesus is described there as full, abounding in grace and truth. Jesus is God come in the flesh, abounding in grace and truth. Behold the God of Exodus 34 Come in the person of Jesus. Exodus 34, 7 told us also that our God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That God himself bears the burden of human sin. Well, according to 1 Peter 2, 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Hebrews 9.28 speaks of Jesus Christ being offered once 
to bear the sins of many. Jesus fulfills the self-description of God who tells us in Exodus 34.7 that he bears the whole range of human sin. Believer, your sin and mine was born or carried by Jesus our substitute on his cross. Behold your God dying on a shameful cross to bear your sin. Jesus fulfills God's self-description in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Well, the focus today has been on God, his character, his ways, his attitude, his personality. The practical application that I want to leave you with starts at a verse that was read at the wedding yesterday, Ephesians 5, verse 1. Listen to this high calling for you this week. Be imitators of this God that we have been describing today. Now, obviously, there's some of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that we will not be able to imitate, like forgiving the whole range of human sin at the divine level. That, of course, is reserved for God. But as we close now, let's take just two areas, very briefly, of our verses where we are indeed called to imitate God, namely the areas of being slow to anger... And merciful and gracious. So first, this week, very briefly, I urge you to call upon the Holy Spirit of God and ask Him to aid you in being slow to anger. Take deep breaths. Remember God's long nose. And imitate it. The book of Proverbs has lots to say to us on this score. Proverbs 14.29 Whoever is long of nose, same Hebrew words there as in Exodus 34.6. Whoever is long of nose, slow to anger, has great understanding. Oh, I need this. But he who has a hasty temper when he is late for a wedding exalts folly. I was exalting folly yesterday. Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is long of nose, slow to anger, quiets contention. Proverbs 19:11. Good sense makes one long in the nose. <laughs> slow to anger. And it is, it is his glory to pass over a transgression. And then in the New Testament, we have James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Imitate God this week by being slow to anger. And also seek for opportunities this week to imitate the God of Exodus 34, who has revealed himself most fully in Jesus. Imitate him by being merciful. Psalm 112.4 talks about the upright person being gracious and merciful. Exactly the same two words that describe God in Exodus 34.6. And Jesus Christ calls us to be merciful as the Father is merciful. Luke 6.36. 
So if you're sitting here wondering today if you should let your boss have it tomorrow morning, would you pause, I'm inviting you to pause, and ask the Holy Spirit for help for you to exercise mercy as God has exercised mercy toward you. Let people around you behold the God who dwells inside you by being imitators of him. Well, after God gave his powerful self-description in Exodus 30, 34, 6, and 7, Exodus 34, 8 tells us this. Right after the, the revelation of God, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. You see what good theology does? It leads a person to worship. Worship was the only appropriate response to the smorgasbord of theology that God gave to Moses. So let's take time now to worship God in a moment of silent prayer, having heard about his character. Father God, we are so thankful that you are so unlike human fathers on this Father's Day. You're so unlike human fathers who can be hot-tempered, who can be short-sighted, who can make mistakes and in some cases even harm their children. We're so thankful that you have described yourself in the way that you have in Exodus 34. God, slow to anger, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity, sin, and transgression. All these things that we've talked about today. May you work this text by the Holy Spirit deep into our bones. Help each of us this week to digest it, to renew our minds in your character. And then, Lord, to rejoice, to lift our heads and go out and declare your praises among the people that we interact with. We pray in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. Hear the benediction directed to you from our Lord. May the eternal and ever-blessed God order what is disordered in your life. May he bring your mind to his truth your conscience to his law, and your heart to his love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.